Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. George Samayana Hello, friends. It's my pleasure to once again welcome you to Inside the Writer's Cafe. I'm Cheryl Nason. Our show always features not only the hottest authors, but we also like to introduce you to exciting new authors who talk about themselves and about their latest work. Our show today features two authors who offer insights into two violent periods in our nation's history. One account is based on first-hand knowledge from the Vietnam War, and the other an interpretation of a bloody time on American soil during the Civil War. Both novels are compelling and thought-provoking. Stay tuned and hear more. Dr. Jeffrey Allen is a clinical dentist in Gloucester, Massachusetts. He's published articles in the Journal of American Orthodontic Society, the Journal of Headache, as well as several other professional journals. Dr. Allen is also the author of two textbooks and has lectured worldwide. He's a Vietnam vet, and I'd like to personally thank him for his service. And he's joining me today to talk about a book that he classifies as sort of historic fiction because it's based on true events, but there's some speculation in there. The title of the book is Overrun, The Battle for Firebase 14. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Cheryl. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And I think it's so interesting, the story of of this book. You started writing this 38 years ago and yet hadn't finished it, and you got a call from a colonel who worked at the Pentagon, and that was sort of a pivotal moment for you. What did he say? What did he He, say that compelled you to finish this book now? He came right to my office. And the reason I didn't finish it 35, 38 years ago was that I didn't want any hardship or bad feelings with the family of the chief character in the novel, whom I'm writing about, um, Lieutenant Commander Dennis Pike, who was a A-6 Corsair pilot lost over Laos in 1972. But when the colonel called me, he said that a farmer had turned in Dennis's helmet found it in a small stream and uh, the colonel came to my office actually and uh, wanted to know everything I knew about uh, Dennis Pike and unfortunately I didn't know too much about it because as far as I knew he was lost in Laos but he also asked me about a uh, maxillofacial orthopedic uh, summit I'd been to in Moscow where I had seen a picture that looked a lot like Dennis Pike Wow. That was in 1985. So, you know, people ask me, uh, how did you happen to, uh, you know, get information about this topic? Well, I lived much of it, and the rest is from firsthand accounts from Marines and seamen and soldiers far braver than myself. But at what branch of the service were you in, Jeff? I was in the Navy. I was a Navy dentist in Vietnam. And you also, you knew Dennis Pike personally, and I love the, the part about that you played, you played the banjo? Yes, I played the banjo, and he played the trombone in our uh, band. We had a band on the ship that was called the Yankee Air Pirates Rockin', Stompin', Tonkin' Golf Music Society. Uh, and I'm sure it was given to us by the North Vietnamese. I'm not, I'm not positive, but they called everybody flying over their country air pirates. So uh, we were the Yankee air pirates. And we played all over the Orient. And uh, Dennis was kind of our 
our leader. He was uh, inspirational, and uh, whenever we played in a large hotel and with a big crowd, he would always reassure us that it was going to go very well. How interesting to have known somebody like that. Now, when I read the word Corsair, my father worked for, it was called Chance Vaught at the time, and I remember him talking about the Corsairs because that's they were part of the manufacturing group, and my dad was a painter, so I'm sure he might have painted some of those planes. And so when I saw the words Corsair too, that sort of flipped me right back to my dad. Tell me an overview. Let's give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the book, and I think you want to share some passages from it as well. Well, let me, uh, the overview would be that the overrun opens with a premonition and foreboding to a flashback to 1944, the furious trauma that my father underwent when being shot down over the Apennine mountain range in northern Italy. Uh, and his deliverance, uh, because he was, it was shot down by Nazi uh, M109 fighter planes, and he always uh, said that he wished that he'd been um, guarded by the uh, red-tailed pilots, fighter pilots. This was a group of African-American fighter pilots that never lost a bomber. Well, his bomber was shot down over the Apennine mountain range, and he was delivered by a, an Italian family that saved him. And this was kind of, you know, the, the book builds to a kind of a stunning climax as the Marines and air cover from the ships in the Tonkin Gulf try to save this beleaguered firebase in northern South Vietnam. And it was my hope that a similar fate to my father's could uh, restore Dennis after his aircraft went down in Laos. Now, is Firebase 14 a real place? It's a fictional compilation of three or four different firebases, and I've gotten information from many of those that were at these different firebases, and one very good friend I mentioned in the book, JB. And I use uh, initials a lot and try not to use um, real names. Like my roommate's name was Jim. Uh, my second roommate, my first one was Chuck, who was a Marine captain. The second one, Jim, was a uh, he became an orthodontist in Northern California and has stayed friendly with me uh, over the years. Wow. Well, you were on the USS Kitty Hawk. Yes. And so, actually, Lieutenant Dennis Pike was one of the Navy pilots and from the Golden Dragon Squadron. Tell me about the Golden Dragons. Well, it's a, uh, basically, the, the air group was divided into squadrons, and they had, you know, COs and XOs, uh, commanding officers and ex- executive officers, and uh, all of whom participated in these uh, sorties. And the as the plot of the book unfolds, it kind of builds tension into a thundering climax at Firebase 14 in northern South Vietnam in the winter of 1969. And... It, the book gives the reader kind of a chilling historical uh, snapshot of life on a U.S. naval warship during wartime and also the, uh, the tension-packed glimpse of uh, jungle warfare in South Vietnam during the years 1969 through 71. Well, being there, of course, the ring of truth is mm-hmm. right there because you were right there. And so the things that you're describing are either based on things you actually saw or are real events or real things that you actually witnessed. Well, what's interesting about the book is how I became uh, involved 
in country. Uh, you know, I was I, I thought I was pretty comfortable on the uh, on the warship. And one night, um, one of the starters, aircraft starter, is someone who hooks a uh, huffer or a compressor onto the jet engine of the aircraft in order to start it. Well, it's 800 pounds pressure in that air hose, and he didn't attach it quite cr- properly to the uh, engine, and it flew off and broke every bone in his face. Oh! So, so I had the duty that night, and I was called down to. Uh, to medical to uh, assist in uh, trying to patch this guy back up. He was a very large guy. Hank was over six feet tall and muscular. And uh, it was very obvious right from the start that we didn't have enough medical facilities on the ship to put him back together. So I was ordered by the captain to take him along with my medical tech to uh, the Repose, which is a hospital ship in the uh, Mekong River. And it was a stormy night. We couldn't find the hospital ship. We kept going lower and lower and in the helicopter. And my patient started vomiting blood. And it was it was just a, a horrible scene. So we had to intubate him. And people started shooting at the copter, too. So we, we intubated him and got him to Tonsonut. And 2 o'clock in the morning, I got orders to Firebase 14. Wow. How they even know where I was was... Uh, Amazing. But anyway, my both my tech and myself got the orders. Wow. What so, an event. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you. And, you know, the trip over there was kind of foreboding because it was in a big aircraft. And uh, uh, let me just read you one quick passage, if you don't mind. No, please. Uh, this is on the flight to Vietnam. And believe me, my backside was so numb and painful. But anyway... I was watching the face of an 18 or 19-year-old man on the other side of the aircraft. It occurred to me that it was not only physical discomfort he was feeling, but bone-numbing acquiescence. The face that stared back through the din had dark skin stretched over a firm, handsome skeletal frame. The dark, shining eyes said it all. They were cold, penetrating, and full of resentment. There was no hint of fear, pain, or even despair. It was abject resignation. So many of those folks on the plane knew that our losses were mounting. This was in the summer of 1969, and uh, we were losing up to 500 men and women a week over there in the uh, in the jungle warfare. Wow! So it wasn't a fun time. I read in your book you had a statistic that 58,213 warriors were lost in the Vietnam conflict, and that's the number of people we don't know anything about. We don't know what happened. We don't know where they are. They haven't been found. Is that right? Well, uh, there's about 1,600 missing in action folks that have never been found. Um, And the book goes through a lot of the, uh, you know, people ask me, is there anything relevant in today's society? And, uh, you know, if some of the efforts that we did in Vietnam weren't wasted, if, if, if the uh, lessons of American involvement can be learned, you know, anyone traveling to Vietnam today will visit a country beautifully uh, and engineered and built by hardworking, industrious, and highly intelligent people. It is a hope that, you know, something like this might be the outcome for the Middle East in the next generation. But if we're going to uh, waste our most precious assets, which are the men and women of our armed forces, by letting politicians who really don't know what they're doing run these wars, we, we can't have it. We, we have to have the military uh, in charge. 
and it's just uh, you could see it every day in Vietnam that it was just uh, it was a politician's war and it just was not going to work out. Well, let's let our listeners know where to get hold of the book. They can get it. Now, I went to and almost always do go to Amazon because it's so easy. I just put in Amazon.com, click on it, and then go down to the book feature. And there's a book search feature that makes it so simple. All they, all the listeners have to do is put in the title of the book, which is Overrun, O-V-E-R-R-U-N, and then a colon, the Battle of Firebase 14 by Jeff, J-E-F-F, and your last name is spelled A-H-L-I-N. And they can just click on that, and it goes right to the book. And I always love this about Amazon. If you click on the book, there's a little feature that makes it wiggle, and it says Look Inside. And so if you click on the Look Inside feature there, usually on the right-hand side, it opens the book up, and there's a really, really good excerpt. And I always read those excerpts, and Amazon does quite a nice job. Whoever posts the information there, they usually do a pretty comprehensive excerpt. Where else, Jeff, is the book available besides on Amazon? Well, I think you could get it from authorhouse.com, and you could probably get it at the website, www.jeffallen.com. Yes, you do have a website just for the book. What else is there? Uh, there's some passages from the book and uh, some background information on myself, and uh, it's uh, pretty comprehensive. Now, you had some exciting news about the book. You want to share that with our listeners? Well, this weekend I'm going out to uh, Los Angeles to meet with some uh, movie folks. I'm not sure that anything will come of it, but uh, I will speak with uh, three or four uh, movie uh, makers, and uh, I'm kind of excited about that. But uh, also, it got picked up by the uh, New York Times Review of Books for uh, review next, I believe, next month. Well, you did drop the name Clint Eastwood to me. Well, I know he has a book. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, he's 81 years old, and one of my friends plays golf with him once in a while, and he gave him the book. But um, Clint uh, is uh, still making movies, and his expression is, don't ever let the old man in into your own psyche. You stay strong, and uh, he's a very good example of someone who's, although in his 80s, still working. And I, he's an inspiration, really, for all of us. I hope I can be practicing dentistry at uh, 81. I couldn't agree with you more. I think he's terrific. And this sounds like the kind of book that he might be interested in. You never know, Cheryl. You don't. Jeff, my fingers are crossed. Well, thank you. Oh, I think this is so exciting. Um what else would you like to share with our listeners? Are there some final thoughts that you'd like to leave them with about the book? Um, well, Overrun is basically a page-turner. The book is difficult to put down with many twists and turns that build suspen- you know, suspension uh, to the unimaginable climax. and. Most readers, when they talk to me about it, they say they don't want the book to end because, although parts are difficult, some parts are difficult. It's an enjoyable read, but um, the book makes the uh, historical situation come alive by viewing the horrors of the jungle warfare in a different and unusual perspective. I think the most important thing is that we don't want to be continually wasting our most precious assets on wars that don't have a definitive goal, whether it's Vietnam, the Middle East, or anywhere else. 
Who was your target audience when you wrote the book? Who did you have in mind? Um, you know, I really didn't have a target audience. I, I think it's anybody who wants to... It could be summer reading for a beach, or it could be people who are interested in uh, life on a naval warship or in, during the uh, conflict, or people who just are interested in the uh, historical uh, aspects of the yeah, of the book. There's a lot of political intrigue in there, but uh, most of it is straight facts. And if I didn't live it, then the, uh, the folks that I talked with did. One of my very good friends, uh, uh, his name is uh, Ted, uh, from near near here in Gloucester, uh, gave me a lot of information about what he experienced. And so did JB, who was a uh, nurse and medical technician up at uh, the fire base. Well, I think that the book is exciting. It it takes it's a, a slice of life from American history that. Is so that is interesting and exciting, and at the same time, we lost so many people over there that we've never seen again and don't know what happened to. And I hope that with the new techniques that they have about with DNA, that they can find some of these folks and they can be identified, and their families will know what happened to them eventually. So, thank you so much for being our guest today. This is absolutely a great time and a great book, and it's a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank. Thank you, Cheryl. And keep in mind, not only the 58,000 of our best and brightest that we lost, but think about it could be even in the millions of North and South Vietnamese folks, men, women, and children that were lost during that war. And the book is basically dedicated to all of them. You know, you're absolutely right. I think we tend to look at that piece in history one-sidedly. So thank you for Mm -hmm. bringing that up. I think that's very important. Well, thank you, Cheryl. And thanks for the interview. I enjoyed it. My pleasure, Jeff. You take care. Best of luck with the book and the movie. Oh, thank you. Take care now. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe on webtalkradio.net. Award-winning author John Flanagan immigrated from Ireland to the United States in the mid-1950s. He served three years in the United States Army and was stationed near Paris. He was the correspondent for the military newspaper Stars and Stripes. John chose to return to Ireland where he attended Trinity College in Dublin. He studied English and literature and he earned a teaching certificate from Alpha College of English. His award-winning short story, The Glazer's Apprentice, won the Hennessy Literary Award. Today, we're talking about his book, Michael Devland and the Cheyenne. John Flanagan is unable to join us, so I'd like to tell you a little about his novel. Michael Devlin and the Cheyenne introduces the reader to penniless Irish immigrant Michael Devlin. He arrives in New York City during 1864. That was the third year of the American Civil War. With a group of friends from his home in County Galway, he enlists in a cavalry regiment. After basic training, they are to fight for the Union Army, but Devlin discovers that he is absolutely unable to fire on Confederate troops. To avoid the taking of human life, he volunteers for duty with a special unit, the Mounted Cavalry, located at Fort Weld in Colorado. The mission is to escort a tribe of Cheyenne Indians from their village to a new reservation a hundred miles away. 
Among the Indian nations, a reservation was a euphemism for a prisoner of war camp. The difficult journey takes place in the dead of winter. The conditions are cold and harsh. The inclement weather is responsible for the death of many of the Native Americans. Beaten and whipped by the soldiers, the weakened Cheyenne can travel no further on this forced march. Devlin is a witness to United States soldiers sadistically slaughtering defenseless braves, women, and children. The senseless killings have a profound effect on Devlin, and they change the course of his life. He learns of a secret government conspiracy to exterminate Native Americans by means of genocide. Devlin becomes a leader for the persecuted Cheyenne tribe, and he initiates several triumphant and bloody skirmishes against the murderous, sadistic soldiers of the U.S. Cavalry. He leads the remainder of the Cheyenne tribe to eventual freedom after a long exodus in Mexico. You can find the book on Amazon. Simply go to Amazon.com and put the title of the book in the book search feature on the drop-down menu. The title of the book is Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Devlin, D-E-V-L-I-N, and the Cheyenne, C-H-E-Y-E-N-N-E, by John Flanagan, F-L-A-N-N-I-G-A-N. You'll find a nice excerpt from the book right there on Amazon. If you click on the book cover itself, then it will bring you to a second page. And up in the corner, it will say, open here, and there'll be a little arrow pointing. Click on the little arrow pointing, and the book will open, and there is an excerpt from the book. You may also find the book on the Author House website. I'd like to read a small excerpt from Michael Devland and the Cheyenne. The mess hall in the Fort Hamilton garrison was serving the evening meal. The hall was equally filled with infantry and cavalry troops. The new sense of impending victory in the Civil War was palpable among the assembled soldiers. General Sherman was continuing to cut a wide swath through Georgia as he marched the Union soldiers toward the sea. The large mess hall was redolent with excitable and unmistakable Irish, German, and Italian accents. With his tray filled with food, Michael looked about for a table to sit at in the crowded mess hall. He finally found a place. When he was seated and looked up to see Kevin standing opposite, his tray also filled with food, Michael nodded and pointed to an empty chair. It seemed to Michael that Kevin took an inordinate amount of time to make up his mind to sit with him or to find somewhere else. In the end, Kevin roughly threw the tray of food on the table and sat down. Michael felt his friend had begun to distance himself from him after the incident in the foxhole. Kevin took up a fork and began to pick at his meal as he looked at Michael. I'm so mad at you, I can't think straight, said Kevin. I don't know what happened to you in that foxhole. I could be dead and buried, thanks to you. I'm putting in for a transfer to Able Company. I don't ever want to be trapped in a foxhole with you again. I might as well shoot myself. 
Kevin was so incensed he shouted expletives at Michael. He stopped suddenly and looked about him. He was drawing attention to himself in the crowded mess hall. He finally became quiet when he looked at Michael again. He was just sitting there, looking at him with a profoundly disturbed expression on his face. Kevin then swore to himself for shouting at Michael. Ah, oh, we're lifelong friends, Michael, for Christ's sake, and we're, we're three thousand miles from home. We should be looking after each other, he said in a lower, calmer voice. What the hell happened to you? You fired one shot all the time we were out there, and you missed. You missed on purpose. Bullets were flying past our heads. I couldn't shoot that kid in the field. He was, he was trying to kill you. I, I know that, but, but I couldn't. Oh, why did you join the goddamn army in the first place? Michael spread his hands apart. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to me in that foxhole, and, and that's the God's honest truth. It just suddenly dawned on me that I'd be snuffing out the light, the life of a human being, and I didn't want to put you in danger, Kevin. You know that. That kid in the field there, he looked to be no more than 15 or 16 years old. Michael pushed the food tray away and looked steadily at Kevin. You don't have to transfer to Able Company, Kevin, to get away from me. Oh, I was just running off at the mouth. That was a hell of a scare you gave me. No, no, I understand, and you were right. Out there on the front lines, I put everyone in danger. No, no, I, I'm trying to get assigned to somewhere in the Army where I won't have to shoot anyone. The thing is, I don't want to leave the Army in disgrace with a dishonorable discharge. They get to hear about it at home in Galway. My family name would be ruined. Michael took out a large brown envelope from inside his pocket and pushed it across the table to Kevin. Eh, what's this? said Kevin with mock surprise. Are they pinning medals on you already? No, there's a new notice posted on the bulletin board over at headquarters. They're looking for cavalry soldiers for the Indian Wars out west in Colorado. The word is that all infantry units will be deployed to the southeast following General Sherman's march through Georgia. The whole country wants a quick end to this war, so fighting with the Indians has got to stop. That's why they're looking for mounted cavalry. They want to make a final push against the Indians, to round them up and confine them to the reservations. Oh, that could be dangerous work. Did you volunteer to go to Colorado? Ah, there's my marching orders that you've got there. It's that or I spend the rest of my life in a jail cell and called a coward. It wasn't a difficult decision for me to make. It nearly cost you your life fighting alongside me. Oh, hell, I'm not going to say anything. I know that, Kevin, but don't you see? I put everyone in harm's way just by being there. How long do you think it would take before I'd be court-martialed and kicked out of the army? I, I couldn't live with that. No, here's how I have it figured. I'll go and I'll work with the Indians. It's just like routine work, rounding them up. I wouldn't have to shoot anyone. By the time I got left in the army, I'll keep my nose clean, and I'll get out with my honorable discharge. Uh, you know, Michael, you could get more than you bargained for. The Comanches, the Sioux, the Cherokees, they're still hostile. 
Oh, you know, just a few isolated cases, Kevin. I've been keeping up with the newspapers. There's only a few warring tribes left. Where I'm going to, in Denver, Colorado, there's only Cheyenne and a few Paiute. They're peaceful. Their chief, Running Bear, keeps signing new treaties to stop his tribe from being massacred. The Indian Wars will soon be a thing of the past, Kevin. Thousands of immigrants are migrating west from all over Europe. It'll be twice the number when the Civil War is over. They're building railroads all the way to St. Louis, Missouri, and no, I'll join the cavalry and I'll go to Fort Weld in Denver, Colorado for the remainder of my time in the Army. What trouble could there be? Winter's coming. The Cheyenne will be given food and warm clothing on the reservations. Pick up a copy of Michael Devlin and the Cheyenne by John Flanagan to continue this captivating and riveting story and tale of our American history. Our time is up, and we'd like to thank you for yours. Remember, pick up that good book and read.